All right, if you guys would turn with me to Matthew chapter 3, uh, we're going to specifically just be in a handful of verses this morning, uh, verses 13 through 17. And I'm trying to make this, this week as simple as possible, really trying to figure out what is the, the main question or the theme that we can um, kind of focus in on this morning. And so I've sort of done that, and the, the sort of big question that I want to answer this morning the best that I can is why in the world was Jesus baptized? And I want to give just five brief points that I've kind of derived from this passage and um, in relation to that question. And, um, and then we're going to spend some time praying afterwards. So Matthew chapter 3, if you guys would turn there, verse 13. When you guys say word when you get there? Awesome. Do you guys have Bibles? Okay, I'm going to be reading a lot from this this morning. And um, only those, uh, whatever, five verses are going to be on the screen. And so I hope you guys have your Bibles with you and you can follow along. But last week, just a, a quick um, piggyback off of last week, I mentioned... Um, and I want to remind you again today that, that Matthew chapter 3 takes place about 28 years after chapter 2. So there's this massive gap. Jesus is born, the baby he grows up, you know, he's about 30 years old at the point that we get to this section that Matthew's talking about. But last week, we were talking about John the Baptist, and we saw that John the Baptist, Baptist was this herald of Jesus, like proclaiming the name uh, of the Lord. And he came to prepare the way of Christ. He was sort of like the one that the baton was being handed off to, to ultimately prepare the way for Christ, to hand the baton off to the Messiah, the King. And so John carried on this message um, of the Old Testament prophets, was what, which was this warning for the people to turn away from their sin. If you read through the Old Testament, what do you see? The cycle, right? Where um, the the Lord sort of shows up and gives them an opportunity to be reconciled, and then they sort of wander away, and they're given away to their sin, and then they are given the opportunity to come back, and the Lord uses these prophets to speak to them and try to get them back or tell them that it's ultimately going to lead to their destruction if they don't turn. And so John the Baptist is, is sort of like this. He's coming to proclaim this harsh message, telling them to repent. And he's preparing the way for, ultimately, Jesus, for this Messiah, the King, the Savior. And um, John the Baptist ultimately presents huma- humanity's biggest issue. The, the purpose of his life is basically to reveal the fact that we are sinful man, that we need a Savior, and so today in the second half of chapter 3, um, Matthew sort of introduces us to the problem. I mean, you have John the Baptist hits the scene and he's sort of telling people to repent, like telling them they're going the wrong way. They need to, he's preparing the way for somebody else that's going to actually grant them the, the, the full like reconciliation, their salvation. Um, but He's preparing the way for Jesus. And so this morning, we're sort of getting to the answer of the problem as John reveals the problem last week. And so Matthew 3, 13 through 17 says this. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John. So understand that Jesus coming from the Galilee to Jordan is probably hiking 60-ish miles, 60 to 70 miles in order to get from the Galilee down to the Jordan. Anybody hike 60 miles this week? No, you didn't. Jesus one-upped you in this one. Uh, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? 
But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. It's interesting, three of the four Gospels actually talk about Jesus' baptism, but all four of the Gospel accounts talk about John the Baptist. It's a fairly significant story. You're not going to find everything in every Gospel, but this specific, the on-ramp for John the Baptist leading to Christ is mentioned in each Gospel account. And I want you guys to see uh, Jesus' words in verse 15. He says this, But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And notice that these are the first words we hear from Jesus. Um, Since he was probably 12 years old and dedicated at the temple. And he told his parents that he he stayed behind in the temple, that he was going to be about his father's business. And then what do we find him focusing on here 16 18 years later, we're finding focusing on his father's business. And so when John asked Jesus why he was coming to be baptized, Jesus explained it. And he said, to fulfill all righteousness. Like that's why God sent Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness, to complete it. But how? What, what in the world did Jesus mean? How would his baptism actually fulfill all righteousness? And why did Jesus even need to be baptized if John's baptism was this baptism of repentance that we talked about last week? Um, last week we talked about this gnarly guy, again, John the Baptist. He's Jesus' cousin. He lives in the wilderness. He wears clothes made of camel's hair and a leather belt, and he eats locusts and honey. Um, and, and we saw that, giant, again, John's primary ministry was preparing the way of the Lord, setting the stage for the king. And he did this by preaching this message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so we talked about the fact that repentance meant turning from something or away from something. And repentance was this act of turn, turning away from something, but actually acknowledging that you're turning to something. It wasn't an aimless turning. You don't just repent and, like, do good. You're actually turning from something to turn to something else. And so what John was really doing was setting the stage to show them, again, there was the sin issue, that you have a problem and you need something else. So he's not telling them just to be perfect people and turn from their sin, but he's actually acknowledging the fact that you have an issue and there's only one that can actually take care of, satiate the issue that you have, and it's Jesus. It's the Messiah. And so he's baptizing them with this baptism of repentance, um, it, it's important for us to talk briefly as we see this word baptism come up about what this word actually means. Because any of us in this room, if you've grown up in the church and you hear the word baptism, what do you immediately start to think? What we did a few weeks ago down on the lake, right? It's, it's this sort of uh, the, the, this ordained time that the church sets aside to wash people in the water, um, to baptize them from death to life, to relate to Christ through their baptism, to like their sins were washed away, to proclaim the work that Christ has done in them. But it's important for us to understand what this word actually means. So the word in the Greek is baptizo, and it literally just means to immerse. And, and so when, when John talks about this baptism of repentance, If we back up to verse 11 in chapter 3, John says, I baptize you with water for repentance. So I immerse you 
in water for repentance. And so John's baptism was really like an, an external sort of thing. It was them acknowledging that the way they're going is wrong and acknowledging that there's a need for something else. But he goes on to say, he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So interesting, like John's baptism was for repentance. It was preparing the way for something greater. It was sort of the outward. But then Jesus' baptism is this baptism of the Holy Spirit, this immersion in the Holy Spirit, But also, he talks about this fire, and the fire that he's referring to is this baptism uh, of judgment, sort of. He says, um, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so what we need to acknowledge about Jesus is he is Savior, he is King, he is the Messiah, but he's also a judge, And one day we will all stand before the throne of God and give an account for our lives. And if you know Christ, you inherit eternal life with Jesus. But if you do not, he talks about this chaff. And Jesus is the one who holds the winnowing fork and does the sifting through. It's him that separates the sheep from the goat. And this is a hard message to share with church often because people don't want to hear words like judgment and repentance. But they're central to Jesus' ministry, right? Jesus encouraged people to repent and be baptized. Jesus encouraged or, or taught the fact that there would be a judgment and that ultimately he was the one who decided. And so, again, understand uh, based off last week what the Jews' recollection of baptism was. And there was only two sorts of baptisms that the Jews would have known of up to this point. There was one, a baptism of purification, which I talked about last week, like scribes um, would go down into a mikvah, like a bath out in the middle of nowhere, and they would purify themselves in this water, but it was strictly external. It wasn't an inward work. And then there was this proselyte baptism. So it was the Gentiles that were converting to Judaism. And what's interesting is that with the proselyte baptism, how does it impact Jews? It doesn't, right? They don't have to be baptized. It's only those that weren't Jew that would be baptized into Judaism. And so when John comes preaching this new baptism in this new way, he's encouraging even the Jews you got to get down on the water. You have to repent too because there's one coming after me who will actually separate those that know him and those that do not. Those that count him as savior and those that, that do not. And so this is the message that John is preaching. This is the baptism that they would understand. And all of a sudden John's on the scene doing this new baptism and there's droves, thousands of people following him down to the Jordan to be baptized. Anybody ever been to the Jordan River before? If you go there now, it's nasty, right? It is only about 20 feet wide, and it's just filthy dirty. It's just disgusting. Um, Hopefully it was nicer back then and a lot wider. But John's down at this river, and he's baptizing them through this baptism of repentance, but he's preaching the fact that there's one coming after him. And so as we get into uh, the the second half of chapter 3 here, um, we understand that John was setting the stage, and then all of a sudden Jesus hits the scene, and he comes 60 miles out from Galilee, perfect timing, enters the scene, he goes down to the river where John is baptizing others, and um, Jesus himself participates in this baptism. But 
part of John's baptism was to show the Israelites that they were actually lost as well. And this is the equalizer in Jesus, that none of us gets a free buy, you guys. Just because you grew up in a Christian home does not make you a Christian. Just because you attend church does not make you a Christian. You don't get the free buy. We all approach the throne the same. Broken people who are desperately in need of a Savior. And honestly, um, there's some of you that have heard this message before, but even in the state that like, I've been in the last week through my cousin's death and acknowledging the fact that most of that side of my family um, has at times called themselves Christians but has never really walked with Jesus, I'm realizing the severity of this, that the world desperately needs Christ. And the message that we're preaching to them is not just the message of come to church with me, raise your hand and, and start a relationship with Jesus. It's an acknowledgement of the fact that you have to leave something behind and turn to something else. So in any other religion, when somebody is baptized, it's the minute they go down in the water that what message are they sending to their families and their friends? I'm actually leaving one religion one way behind to take on another way. And so you see in other religions the severity of baptism. Man, you go to India when an Indian gives their life to Jesus and goes down into the waters of baptism and it's not like us where we just stand there and go, oh, awesome. They're literally saying, I'm willing to take on all the opposition I'm gonna face for making this decision and potentially being my, my family leaving me behind, being disassociated from my friends and my family because I'm following a new way. And, and so understand that even as John comes on the scene, people are turning from one way, Jews and all, to acknowledge that there is a new way. And then when John passes the baton off to Jesus here, it's sort of like God's hand coming upon Jesus and identifying him as the final way. This will be him. I was actually just setting the stage for him. I was sort of showing you that there's an issue, but not really telling you what the, what the solution was. And now the one comes who actually is the solution to the issue that I presented to you. And for any of us, if we've come to Jesus any other way than at first acknowledging the fact that we are sinful people that are in need of a savior, then you have come to Jesus on the wrong terms. That's foundational for us. We can acknowledge our need for something greater that we cannot do on our own. So ever since Adam and Eve's fall into sin, we were born into sin. And scripture states clearly there's no one righteous, not even one. Romans 3.10. A few verses later, Paul reiterates this. No one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The, the, the law identified sin for us, sort of like John the Baptist is identifying sin for all the people. And scripture also teaches that the wages of sin is death. So we're separated from God by our sin, and according to his law, we deserve to die. That's what we get. But the incredible news of scripture and the reason that, that this is so amazing, what's taking place in Jesus as God is identifying him as king is because he's revealing his great love for us. 
God sent his only son, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Does that not sound like good news to you guys? Amen. I don't deserve it. By God's grace, I've been granted it. Righteousness. And this is the truth that Jesus is proclaiming through his baptism. There may be a ton more reasons that Jesus is being baptized, but I just want to identify five this morning and talk through those. First is that Jesus is being consecrated to serve as a priest. So uh, first, his baptism served as sort of this consecration for him as our high priest. In Leviticus 8, again in Numbers 8, we see this picture of how God instructed Moses to, be, to set apart the priests and the Levites for ministry, to consecrate them, set them apart for ministry. And so in both these instances, in addition to sacrifices, in addition to anointing, uh, these men were washed, they were sprinkled with water, they were cleansed in sort of a symbolic way. And then similarly, in Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is placed in the water as this act of cleansing, the, the setting apart for ministry, this identifying that he belongs to somebody else, like he is the Father's son. And his baptism was, in a sense, this crowning of him as king. Like, it's so significant for all that are partaking, like watching this happen. Like, John is identifying him as the king of kings, as the Messiah, as this great high priest. Second is that Jesus was setting an example for you and I. He, he was sort of setting an example as he did for his disciples in John 13. If you remember that just before Jesus' last supper with his disciples, he takes off his outer clothes and he begins his, uh, his cloak and he begins to wash his disciples' feet. And just like John the Baptist in this passage here Peter, at that time, didn't feel that it was appropriate for Jesus to actually humble himself in this way, to get down on his hands and feet and begin to wash their feet. But again, like he did with John's story here, he told Peter, you don't realize now what I'm doing, but later you'll get it. Like right now, it doesn't make sense why I'm being baptized. Later it will. Right now, it doesn't make sense why I'm down on my hands and feet washing your feet and serving you, but later it will. And then in John's gospel, it goes on to explain in chapter 13 that when he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and he returned to his place. He said, do you understand what I've done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that's what I am. And now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I've set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. So we see this pattern in Jesus' life, and honestly, as we get into chapter four, we're about to hit the ground running with a bunch of stuff that Jesus is doing that I think were examples and models for us in how we're actually to engage the world with the power of the Holy Spirit that he's put in us, how we're to engage him with the world and the work of Jesus. So in the same way that Jesus was setting this example for us through his baptism, while Jesus didn't need to repent of sin, he wanted to display his humility by going through baptism. He was making this public statement to everybody by being baptized, and that's what he would later command us to do in the Great, in the great Commission. Jesus wants us to not just internally make the decision to follow him or just raise our hand, but to publicly proclaim him. And I cannot emphasize this enough, 
How will the world know him unless the sent go forth and proclaim the name of Jesus? And what is it that you're proclaiming to the world? Not go to church or go to Bible study or just start a relationship with Jesus, but your proclamation is that you have a problem and Jesus is the answer to it. And we invite people into the solution. Amen? I mean, as we look around in our world, we, we see people who need something. They're looking for something. We know what the answer is, and yet we sit idly on our hands or just tell them that we're Christians, but we don't explain to them what that actually means to take that leap, that step. Jesus said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. There's something about the proclamation. Third, Jesus was identifying with us and giving us a way to identify with him. It's also interesting that Jesus is sort of identifying with John the Baptist's ministry and then also making the statement that between the two of them, they've like sort of fulfilled all righteousness, that all of it's culminating to this. It's all being handed off through Christ. And so Jesus was, was identifying with us and providing this way for us to identify with him. Second Corinthians 5.21 tells us how God acted to rescue us from our sin. And it says that, um, that, that he made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God through Jesus. Like 700 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah paints this very similar picture in Isaiah chapter 53. There's a handful of verses here. Verse 5, he says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. Verse 6, We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked, with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was perfect, yet he related to us. He, he, he identified with us. Verse 12 of Isaiah 53, therefore I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors transgressors then you go to hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 through 18 it says since the children have flesh and blood he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil and free those who all uh, their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. For surely it's not angels he helps, but Abraham's descendants. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful, merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. I mean, uh, you read passage after passage about how Christ related to us. He identified with us. I mean, what kind of king steps off his throne to come into the world for a brief bit in order to relate to us as humans, as flesh and blood? Live a totally sin sinless life, but set the example for us. Be tempted like us, and then lose his life wrongfully on a cross in order to grant us the opportunity at salvation to wash away our sins through his death 
and his resurrection from that cross. One of the practical lessons I think we need to take away from Jesus' baptism is that every believer, I think, should be baptized. If you've placed your faith in Jesus, you should be baptized as a matter of obedience to Jesus' great commission to go therefore and baptize everyone in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I also, like a brief side tangent, it's interesting that um, you know many different sects of the faith would like sprinkle baptize. Anybody in here sprinkled as a kid? I was sprinkled when I was six. I'm not. I'm not downplaying it. Um, but I think there's a great case for the fact that I don't think John the Baptist was like sprinkling a little water on Jesus. I think it was just like you know dunking him on. It was like a full immersion. Um, but saying all that, like, I also want to stress the fact that Jesus was about to go undergo this baptism that was completely different from the baptism that we know in church today. You have to understand that. When we're baptized, we're basically publicly proclaiming that we've trusted what Jesus did on the cross for us. We need him. And that we've become permanently identified in his death and in Christ's resurrection, and so that we are saved from sin. But in Jesus' case, Jesus didn't need to be saved from sin. He was sinless. And so that's the difference. The part that we bring into the equation is the fact that um, our our sin, and we have the sin, and, and the penalty for those who sin is death, and we desperately need the Savior. And the part that Jesus brings in his own sacrifice on the cross um, is the fact that he is the one who can save us from our problem. Number four, that he was pointing to his baptism that would ultimately take place in the future. Um, Even though Jesus didn't need to be baptized for repentance, as we talked about John's baptism, he, he did to show his submission to the Father and his overarching plan of salvation. Like, God was identifying Jesus as the way, the, the, the Messiah, the, the king. Um, so when, when Jesus spoke of his baptism, he was referring to his death. He was referring to his resurrection. And that's why when he's speaking to even James and John, um, he agrees that they would undergo this baptism as he would be baptized with them because they would be killed for their faith and As he explained to them, he didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus was proclaiming that he was willing to be obedient, obedient to even death on a cross, even uh, death on a cross so that we might have the opportunity to be made righteous through his faith. And then number five, that his baptism proclaimed God's approval of Jesus as our sin bearer. And this is like the main point. So if you look, look at Uh, verse 16 and 17. He says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And now some scholars could argue that maybe, maybe John potentially was the only one that heard this or experienced this, but there's part of me that believes that in the midst of the thousands that are gathered down there at the Jordan, 
um, as Jesus is coming up from the water, there's something being accomplished identifying Jesus because Jesus goes on from this point and he begins his ministry, his three years of serving the Lord on this earth, being obedient to every little thing that God leads him to do that the Father would ask of him to do. Matthew tells us that, again, as soon as Jesus was baptized, he comes up out of the water and the moment that moment heaven was opened and he sees the spirit of God descending on him like a dove. In Luke 3, Luke says that the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And why was this? Like why was, why was the spirit descending on him? Why are they talking about this dove like a dove? And I wanna share with you guys some mentions of doves in scripture that I think could make sense of some of this. And the scriptures um, it was a dove that demonstrated that the waters of the great flood had receded and that God's wrath for sin upon the world was over in Genesis 8. Doves were used as symbols in scripture for innocence and harmlessness. Jesus once uh, sent his disciples out to be his witnesses in the world and he commanded them to be as harmless as doves. Um, in Song of Solomon, doves are used as this metaphor for something beautiful and precious and lovely. And when Solomon spoke of his bride, he said, my dove, my perfect one, is the only one, the only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. Doves are referred to in scripture as offerings. The, the most humble offering that somebody could actually make would be a dove. And Jesus, as you recall, when he drove out the money changers and, and the, 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 the crazy folks from the temple, he, he orders those who sold doves to actually remove them. And I think it's interesting that then it's in the form of a dove, it says in bodily form in Luke, that it descends upon Jesus. There's something about his innocence and his harmlessness. There's something about this dove descending upon him that marked Jesus, his approval by God as our sin bearer. And then Matthew then goes on to tell us more about what happened after Jesus' baptism. He writes that a voice from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And God gives him his public approval. Jesus is basically getting his crown before the whole world. Like Jesus is the son. As he gets into his ministry, we're going to watch a lot of the life of Jesus and how he acts in obedience to his father. But we have to see this as sort of a hinge coming up. And one of the questions I thought about this week as I was reading this section is, I'm always trying to figure out what's the application for us. And I realize that not every passage we read from is going to have some like obvious application for us. But I would ask the question of you today. If Jesus is identifying himself, or if God is identifying Jesus as king, as savior, how does that change your life? Because from this point on, Jesus is thrust into a world of chaos, much like we live in today. And you have to choose who you will follow. Will you give way to the world, or will you acknowledge Jesus as the king, and I think this is one of the most incredible scenes in the Bible. We, we see actually the, the three members of the Trinity in one scene, well, the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and they're all working in agreement and, and announcing the fact that Jesus is this redeemer. 
And we have no other redeemer than Jesus. There's none like him. And so no other is so righteous as to bear our sins on our behalf. No other's so gracious that he would be willing to stoop down to the level of entering into our fallenness on this world. No other is so clearly graced by God's divine approval. He became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God through faith in him. And because he acted to make us righteous, you guys, he's not only a righteous king, but he's over a righteous kingdom. And as Josh talked about a couple weeks ago, this kingdom that's been established here on earth that John comes proclaiming that Jesus then begins to announce the rest of his ministry. If you're part of that kingdom, you first come through Christ. If all this is true, then how foolish would it be to reject Jesus this morning? How foolish would it be to reject the only righteous one in order to try to earn God's favor by our own pathetic efforts? Like, it just doesn't work. How foolish would we be to reject him who united himself to us in his righteousness? And I think that in a world full of hurt, and some of you are experiencing it right now, there's only one option. And so in light of this passage this morning, I'm going to invite Angela to make her way up here. But in light of this passage this morning, as God identifies Jesus as his beloved son with whom he's well pleased, and he sort of gives his crown and his stamp of approval to his son on this earth, as this proclamation before all men. How does that change your standing before God this morning? Will you read this as some sort, as some sort of fictitious story that you'll go on to tell your kids about and you'll go on to talk about but never actually live into? Or will you leave here today acknowledging the fact that there's an opportunity for you? For some of us, we just need a little reminder And this last week, as I sat with my own kids a couple days after my cousin's death, I thought to myself, like, I want to take every opportunity I can to proclaim the life and the work of Jesus to others and not just preach some cheap gospel, but a gospel that actually requires something from us, our life, but a gospel that you cannot conjure up on your own by giving your life to anything other than Christ himself. And some of you have submitted your lives to dozens of different things, and you've acknowledged those things as kings of your kingdom. And this morning, as we acknowledge Jesus, we realize that Jesus is the king of the kingdom. And he's the only way you're going to find righteousness. Like you want relief from your guilt and your shame. It's only found through the blood of Jesus. You want a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's only found through Jesus. And I don't say this as just platitudes this morning. But as somebody who on a regular basis is looking to Christ as the one who can satiate the biggest issues that I 
face in my life. And like knowing it's only through him, by his blood, it was enough. Would you guys stand with me? Why don't you close your eyes, bow your heads. For 30 seconds, I want you to posture your heart in such a way that you sort of acknowledge Jesus is here this morning, that his spirit is in our midst. Savior, how does that change the circumstance that you find yourself in this morning? Could it be that some of you have sort of set yourselves up as your own kings and your own rulers of your own kingdoms, and the reason you find yourself in the anguish you find yourself in is because you're trying to rule over and control something that you were never meant to rule over and control? What does humble submission to Jesus the King look like in your life this morning? Jesus, I thank you for each soul represented in this room. Jesus, I thank you for the amazing work that you accomplished for us on the cross. We thank you for this Bible that we get to read from, to be encouraged by and challenged by the source of truth that we get to point back to and acknowledge as the foundation for every decision, the foundation for every move and action, word we speak, action we take. God, I pray for your church this morning. I pray for each life that it would be built on none other than Christ and Christ alone. And for those in this room, that find themselves wandering aimlessly, those in this room that find themselves sort of a mess, a ball of a mess in the corner, in anguish and in pain, wondering what to do next. I'm praying, Jesus, that in the same way that you came to earth 2,000 years ago and you walked amongst us, that you, Jesus, would extend your hand down to those in this room that are hurting at the greatest depths this morning and you'd reach out and touch them, Jesus. That your peace would come, that your salvation would come, your forgiveness would come. Jesus, that you would pull them out of the mess that they find themselves in. That they would turn, Jesus, from the things that are destroying them to acknowledge you as the way and the truth of In your name we pray, amen.